Yesterday, while traditional food was being handed out to people attending an event to commemorate a late religious leader. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning, three minutes after eight o'clock. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, looking at the markets this morning, Asian stocks uh, look set to open perhaps just a tad higher. It's the first full week after the holidays, so it'll be very interesting to see how that develops. Bitcoin tops $1,000 again as game maker Zynga says it will accept the cryptocurrency. And Taiwan's HTC misses on earnings for the fourth consecutive quarter. Guests include Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. Mark Michelson, senior counselor at APCO Worldwide, will join us. We'll take a look at the Japanese economy. With TPP coming up and uh, with a hike in the sales tax this year, interesting to try to dissect uh, where the Japanese economy is moving and whether or not we can get a little boost to global growth from Japan after its long hiatus. And also Michael Kurtz will join us from Nomura Securities. We'll get his outlook for this year. And we'll also be talking a little bit about Hong Kong and China and what we can expect. And we'll get you the uh, latest here as the markets open now. Uh, The Nikkei is down 153 points. That's almost 1% lower at 16,137. And looking at the Hang Seng Index, where we start this morning, 22,817. So not the best week last week. Australia is a bit lower this morning, and the Kospi in Seoul is a little bit higher. Well, last week, uh, we saw a bit of a movement up in the dollar, and that came after some comments from Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke, saying that the outlook for the U.S. economy is better in this coming year. He also repeated that monetary policy would stay highly accommodative for as long as needed. Fed President Charles Plosser, though, said that the Great Recession in 2008 made some permanent damage to the economy. The early stages of the recession... I put forward the idea that the crisis and recession were caused by a shock that likely had either permanent or very long-lasting consequences for our economy. I suggested that the financial crisis may have precipitated a permanent or highly persistent decline in the output of financial intermediaries, the financial crisis. I've also considered the possibility that the collapse in house values from their inflated levels can be viewed as a permanent loss of wealth affecting households' balance sheets. And so he says if you accept that, then that means that the response should be different from normal. Either of these types of disturbances would require significant real, real adjustments in the economy. So if we view the shock we experience as largely permanent in nature, in contrast to being mostly transitory, then it alters the way you should think about gaps. And, more importantly, it alters the way you think about the policy responses in that context. So if you accept the idea, I think as most economists do, that money is neutral in the long run, money has no ability to change real allocations in the long run, um, such perm- uh, then the effects, then the efforts to use monetary policy to offset permanent shocks and to close what appears to be an uh, appears to be a gap uh, caused by those permanent shocks will either be ineffective or perhaps be counterproductive. 
Yeah, he struggled a little bit there, uh, not speaking as well as he would have liked. But basically what he was trying to say is that uh, you've got these permanent uh, impacts on the U.S. economy. So your response has to be different. And he is also very supportive of getting back to normal on monetary policy. Against that backdrop, we say good morning to Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Brian. You had some other Fed presidents out, uh, like uh, Eric Rosengren over at Boston, saying better to be cautious. Uh, you know, we've still got very, very low inflation, and we don't have um, unemployment where we want it to be, so you should be cautious. But you had uh, James Bullard at St. Louis and uh, also uh, Mr. Plosser from Philadelphia, as I mentioned, saying, you know, speed it up, speed up the taper. <laughs> well, it's very interesting. I think... Uh you're to be commended for playing Plosser because he doesn't get a lot of attention. And indeed, up in Philadelphia, I found that um, he perfectly mirrors the, the lack of consensus on policy within the Federal Open Market Committee. This is not a unified group, and to lead it, as Ben Bernanke has done for eight years, is not easy. So it, does it seem to you that it will be rather orderly, that you'll get about $10 billion per month, and that it will depend on the data as we move through this year? Yes, I think it does. You know, Ben Bernanke, in his farewell talk in Philadelphia to the American Economics Association, was really at pains to say that it's transparency that is driving Fed policy, and that, uh, of course, they're being data-driven, but they're being very open in the way they're thinking. So they don't want to surprise financial markets. I think that means that just as you say, probably 10 billion a month to scale back. They've told us it's coming. Janet Yellen will be confirmed in less than 24 hours as the new chairman. I think it's all going to be steady as she goes. And I must tell you, Brian, that when you look at, well, there were 10,000 economists up at that meeting. I know they don't agree on anything, really. But when Ben Bernanke finished his talk, everybody stood up and applauded. Monetary policy has given very high marks for what it's done to pull us out of the Great Recession over the last five years. Yeah, when you watch a film like Too Big to Fail or some of these other films that have been made about the Great Recession, uh, you wonder how these individuals uh, like Geithner, like Ben Bernanke, uh, and like Hank Paulson, uh, you know, how they slept at night. That's true. This really was a calamity of, you know, great depression magnitude, and it could have gotten much worse. And like the Great Depression, it, it became global when Europe went down. Thank goodness Asia did not. But I think what uh, Geithner and Bernanke and Paulson have done have been very salutary in terms of reinstilling investor and consumer confidence. And now, I think as we go into the new year, there's a lot of optimism that maybe the U.S. economy is getting back to a more sustainable 3% growth rate. That would be great if it happens, and maybe the stock market advance of 2013 was telling us that it's quite possible. The prism through which Ben Bernanke will be judged by historians over the next 20, 30, 40 years will probably be, did quantitative easing work? In other words, did unconventional monetary policy actually work? And I'm just curious, I mean, do you think it did? Well, I think it certainly worked so far. It's probably worked less successfully than some would have hoped. 
certainly the economic growth rate with zero interest rates, both short and then very low interest rates long, have not really propelled rapid economic growth thus far. The real test, Brian, is going to be the unwinding. You know, Bernanke does not like to say that the debt has been monetized a la what might happen or did happen in Zimbabwe or other catastrophe countries. So it's now unwinding and taking back all that money that was put into the system that is going to really tell the story of whether we're going to be able to judge monetary easing, quantitative easing, as a success or less than a success. Yeah, I guess uh, if inflation comes roaring back in the next few years, uh, people will probably say, uh, well, all it did was uh, create new problems uh, and a new crisis. Um, so, you know, it, it's impossible to say at this point whether or not um, this experiment has worked. I guess we'll have to wait five or ten years. But one thing that I'm kind of curious about is for, for all those people on the side that hate quantitative easing and say, oh, it, it didn't work, it's not working, um, you know, they're, they're rather adamant that it should be taken away really fast. And it seems it's a little bit difficult to say if it's not really having much of an effect. And, you know, what's the big deal about rushing it out? Well, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think it would be a mistake to end it at once. The mere talk back in May, June, September, that period, uh, you know, we know what happened to interest rates. And I think Mr. Bernanke and his colleagues on the FOMC are pretty determined that that not happen again. So they want to telegraph exactly what they're going to do. But, you know, there's no inflation in sight. That was another message of this meeting in Philadelphia. There's no inflation in sight. In, in fact, there is a worry that the inflation target has not been reached, that we're like Europe. We're just barely above deflation. So where's the inflation? If it comes later, that'll be a surprise, but it's certainly not here now. Okay, I slammed the corporates the uh, past couple of weeks with you, and you didn't like it. Uh, but I wanted to talk a little <laughs> bit about um, uh, Bill de Blasio in New York, and just wondering whether he's going to uh, slam the corporates a bit. Probably not, but he has made a big deal out of trying to get at the wealth gap. Uh, he did so in his inaugural address, and I thought it was worth talking for just a few minutes about uh, the new New York City mayor. What are the big efforts that he's going to make to try to uh, reduce this gap between the haves and have-nots? Well, that's very important, and, and like quantitative easing, we really don't know the result. But Mr. de Blasio, you know, has got just a few years to make all this happen. It's not going to be easy, but it's a big shift from the approach of Mr. Bloomberg. So, you know, can raising the minimum wage ameliorate the wage gap, the income gap. I'm not sure that it will. I'm sure that the Democrats are going to put a lot of pressure nationally and certainly in New York City from Mr. de Blasio to raise wages at the bottom. Now, will that create a kind of inflationary push? It could, but we'll have to wait and see. He has not yet revealed the specifics of what he's going to do. He's just talking about making housing more affordable, um, improving the hospitals, uh, trying to improve hospital treatment there, and uh, just generally, as you say, trying to raise the wages on, on the uh, people at the lower end. That's right. 
But so far, he's done what all mayors do. He's been out there shoveling snow in the great snowstorm that we've had in the Northeast, and uh, that doesn't seem to matter if you're Republican or Democrat. But look, de Blasio's taking a real strong Democratic Party push to pull up the bottom. But, you know, when you start talking about housing, that's sort of the way we got into this housing mess that led to the bubble that burst in 2006 and seven. Yeah. So you can't really just uh, erode the lending standards to make sure everybody gets into a proper dwelling. I think he's got a very tough road ahead. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it works. And, uh, you know, maybe it's a model for places like Hong Kong. We've got a, a really uh, big Gini coefficient as well, uh, and China too. Uh, but uh, we'll wait and see how that uh, plays out over the next couple of years. Barry, thank you. Uh, Barry Woods, our international economics correspondent, joins us every Monday morning on both Hong Kong Today and Money for Nothing. And uh, you can hear him Monday mornings, both of those programs, live from Washington. Well, let's say good morning to Michael Kurtz from Nomira Securities. Michael, good morning. Morning, Brian. What's most on your mind this morning? What are you focused on? Well, I guess it's really the um, outlook for the dollar and treasury yields now that the Fed has started the great tapering exercise. And um, maybe along with that, the underlying outlook for U.S. growth is a, is a critical backdrop for Asia. Yes. If there is a switch out of bonds, uh, we've seen bond yields move up. So the 10 years around 3% or so just to tick under that, uh, it means that money's coming out of the bond market. A really big question is where does it go? Uh, does it go into U.S. equities, uh, European uh, instruments of some sort? Does it come out here to Asia, the emerging markets? What do you think? Well, historically, we, we have seen a very strong relationship between uh, Treasury yields going up and a rise in foreign purchases of Asian equities. So there's reason to believe, at least, that that could happen this time, although we don't assume that history always repeats itself. And I think investors do have some concerns, perhaps this time, that the backdrop uh, in terms of the outlook for Chinese growth may be a little bit more subdued. But um, certainly that, you know, we should be thinking in terms of money coming out of safe, uh, safe haven type asset classes and looking to take more growth exposed or inflation um, uh, exposed asset exposure and equities is certainly the most likely place for for those funds to go. Yet when uh, the taper or pulling back on quantitative easing was first mooted in May of last year, emerging markets got slammed. And even though the stock markets came back a little bit, money rushed out of the bonds and the currencies. Uh, Do we not get a repeat of that? Do you think it'll be somewhat different this time? I think it can be different, and I would be assuming that it will be different, certainly in absolute terms compared to the summer. First of all, um, during the summer, uh, at exactly the same time that Bernanke began to moot the possibility of an early taper, we unfortunately began to see a deterioration in some critical global growth indicators. So you had this adverse combination of potentially at least liquidity conditions beginning to diminish while the growth was also looking less bankable. This time around, uh, not only uh, is the outlook for the taper itself much more embedded into expectations and therefore less of a negative surprise, but recent data out of the developed markets has also been suggesting that, in fact, the growth is starting to materialize pretty robustly again. Not so So much China, though, right? less downside and more upside. China, yeah, remains a background concern for us, although we don't see any substantial likelihood of a hard landing scenario in China. So those, you know, worst case 
sort of regional growth stories, I think, remain very much off the radar screen for now. But China, uh, admittedly, is going to be more of a uh, follower of the global recovery this time along rather than uh, sort of the, the, the key leading element of, of global growth as we all became accustomed to seeing it as in the years uh, immediately before the global financial crisis. It's this is back to a world uh, recovery that's being led by the developed markets again. Mm, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, it felt tempting to think that uh, Hong Kong might uh, benefit after a long hiatus from uh, stock market gains, but then we had that 500-point slam when the uh, when the data coming out of China didn't look too good, and it may also have been you know the first day of the year, people uh, wanting to rebalance a little bit. What's your outlook for the Hong Kong stock market over the next six months? Yeah, I'm sorry to say, Brian, that uh, Hong Kong for me does stand out to be one of the uh, sort of lesser advantaged markets in the region by the sort of trends that we're looking at here. First, because as you so correctly observe, it it does remain much more uh, perhaps directly hostage to the outlook for Chinese growth than many of the other regional stock markets. And secondly, because uh, fairly uniquely, Hong Kong, uh, I think, has a lot more of a direct negative relationship uh, with the U.S. monetary policy outlook, first because the dollar peg that the HKMA maintains uh, pretty much obligates it uh, to, to, to maintain a, a local yield curve structure that parallels what's happening in the U.S. yield curve. Secondly, because of the currency peg itself, a strengthening U.S. dollar implies a strengthening Hong Kong dollar, and then by extension, more deflationary pressures in the local property market. Finally, because the Hong Kong stock market itself is so very intense in property, in terms of its market capitalization. 33% of the market is property developers, and a big chunk of the rest is in local banks that have a lot of exposure to property through mortgage lending and developer lending. And therefore, it's a market that unfortunately does comparatively poorly when the Fed is tightening and when China is slowing. Yeah, it's a real drag, and you sort of bummed me out this morning, but, um, you know, that's, that's how it looks, I guess. Uh, uh, however, okay, uh, the U.S. economy does look to be uh, getting energized. Uh, you had a lot of, of top economists uh, out over the weekend saying, looks like we will um, – uh, pick up the pace in the United States uh, this year. Uh, the stock market did very well last year. The economy really didn't grow that uh, that fast, around 2% or so. We had multiples moving quite a lot higher, earnings less so. Um, do you think that uh, if we get a pickup in earnings, uh, that, that that can be like another leg in powering the U.S. stock market higher? I, I, I would say not only could it be, but that it almost necessarily must be. Um, I, I very much agree with your characterization of, of the market last year as having rallied in spite of the earnings outlook. And, and while that's perfectly uh, sort of rational in the context of a multi-year recovery outlook, it does mean that more of the recovery now has already revealed itself in the form of a multiple expansion. Right? And there's only so much further that multiples can expand before the market begins to look overpriced. And therefore... Uh, we think in 2014, market upside will be much more dependent on uh, and determined by the outlook for corporate earnings growth. So that could uh, be good for us. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about uh, uh, CEOs and their capex uh, because that would be good for Hong Kong. That would be good for China if uh, if the if the big multinationals start to spend more money uh, and invest more. Um, do you? I, I saw a report late last week that actually there was a little bit of, of pickup in the last quarter uh, in. CEOs 
you know, pulling the trigger. Um, does that uh, bode well, do you think? Does it continue? And if so, they must be spending money on technology. And we've got some technology out here. Shouldn't that be good for our, our tech firms? Oh, absolutely. And uh, as a matter of fact, we see reasons to believe that corporate management, not only in the U.S., but in fact globally, are, are beginning to come under more and more market pressure to start putting their balance sheet cash to work. Uh, companies that have large amounts of cash on the balance sheet outperformed uh, the general equity space between 2007 and 2011. By 2012 and through last year, they were performing sort of in line to even slightly below the market. And looking out into this year, then, what it suggests is that markets are actually going to start to punish managements who underutilize their balance sheet by keeping too much cash on hand. A lot of that will go out as capital spending. Some of it may become share buybacks or M&A or special dividends, but a lot of it will be capital spending. And you're right, Brian, that the number one destination, certainly for U.S. capital spending, is actually tech hardware. It's an even bigger destination than machinery and equipment. And of yeah. course, Asia produces the lion's share of the sort of enterprise hardware that U.S. companies are typically buying when they when they beef up their capital spending. Okay, on that note, I'll say goodbye to you and say good morning to Mark Michelson. Uh, and uh, Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Michael Kurtz is, I don't have his title in front of me, I think it's senior strategist, uh, senior equity or top equity or the big swing in uh, equity strategist at Nomura Securities. Mark Michelson, senior counselor, APCO Worldwide. And CEO, Mark, of what is it, the Asia Forum? Yeah, Asia CEO Forum for Asia IMA Forum. Asia. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So some of that stuff we were talking about, about uh, impact on corporates out here. I mean, from all these CEOs that you liaise with regularly, uh, what's their story? Is it upbeat or is it downbeat? Well, I mean, I think it's it's still generally upbeat, but subdued, certainly. Uh, I think a more realistic view. Uh, the problem is, of course, one of the challenges is, is that a lot of their, a lot of their uh, senior management is putting a little bit of pressure on them because growth hasn't been very strong elsewhere, it's, as you've pointed out it's picking up in in some areas in the world so there's been a lot of pressure on asia especially on the china business and as we've pointed out the chinese economy is not growing quite as fast as it has before that affects different companies in different ways but nonetheless they have to adjust what uh what our friend Mohammed El Arain has called the new normal to some extent, which uh, which might be a little bit different way of looking at, at growth and, and lower your, especially your top line expectations. We wanted to talk about Japan this morning. That's why we invited you in. Uh, it's good to get uh, some of this regional picture uh, as well. One of the big challenges for Japan, of course, this year will be the rise in the, uh, in the sales right. uh, tax, which is coming up in April. The sales tax is going to go to 8% from 5%, and then there's a second tax hike, uh, they'll move it up to 10% in 2015. Uh, economists say that that will cause a drag this year, but will they go into recession? What do you think? Well, I, we don't think so, at least in the in the short term, although it will cause a drag and, and think that most of the growth this year will be in the first quarter as, uh, as there's a rush to take advantage of the, of the lower tax situation. Also, as we all know, Japan has a history of making adjustments in what they say they're going to do. So although it probably will go up three points, the, uh, the second, uh, the second uh, increase, well, we'll see what happens. It depends on the impact. Japan has not had a great history of timing in terms of raising their consumption taxes. I think you know, it seems that whenever they've been, they've done it, it's had a, a more negative impact on the economy than they thought. Saying that, the other parts seem to be working. I mean, 
you know, Barry was talking about, Barry Wood was talking about the U.S. that uh, that there's no inflation in sight. Well, in Japan, there is inflation in sight, which is relatively good news. It actually is positive for the first time in a in a long time. And uh, and I think there's a really good chance that they will reach their their two percent target uh in, uh, in the next uh, year or so, maybe a bit more than that. The question is then controlling it. And, of course, they're, they are in the midst of quantitative easing, what they call quantitative and qualitative easing, uh, which is also having a positive impact. What's frustrating, though, is like you see a day like today. Okay, The yen had been weakening for right. about eight days in a row, and today it strengthened a little That's bit. Right. Now it's uh, 104.64 uh, against, against the dollar. So you see this big sell-off in uh, the Nikkei, now down uh, you know, 265 points. Uh, it's it's just hard to get some kind of equilibrium up there. Well, I think there's a lot of skepticism still, especially about that so-called third arrow, which we keep hearing about structural reforms, and you know that's that's associated with really making some major changes in labor, in immigration, and in, in more females in the market, in politi- even political reform. And of course, some of this is associated with Japan's uh, participation in the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations. We don't know exactly where those are. Those are always supposed to be concluded, and they never quite are. And since the negotiations are not public, we aren't we aren't sure. But saying that. Uh, is Japan going to make the changes they need that that will actually make a big difference in the economy? And part of that is structural, too. So I think what you said to me was something like uh, many have, have talked about this. Will the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, be to Japan what joining the WTO was to China? Yeah, I mean, you know, and that's probably overstating it. But Japan has a history of using gaiatsu, which are outside pressure, to try to uh, – Push, push the country forward. I mean, China did that, of course, and Zhu Rongji in particular with the WTO. This is part of the way, but there is considerable resistance. And even more importantly, I guess, the Liberal Democratic Party depends a lot on the, on the elements who would be Hurt by a change uh, in a reform construction, that would farmers, people like other, that, other key like it, support yeah. areas. The reason why it's important. This is obviously a specialty uh, program uh, looking at finance, uh, but we have a lot of general listeners. Sure. Uh, but wouldn't it be great if you know if the reform that we see underway in China and Japan was largely successful, and then in the next few years it could really provide uh, a bounty for Hong Kong? No, absolutely, and it would be a big boost. And of course, part of this you see in Japanese investment abroad, which is they invested $6 billion in the first half just in ASEAN alone. A lot of that was in Thailand, which also brings up some concerns, as we know, because as you can see in Thailand, there's a little bit of a problem economically and politically as well. But at the same time, it does show there's an upsurge. This is still colored, of course, by the Japan and Japanese and China confrontation in the in the East China Sea. And the hope is that that doesn't really spill over into to affecting what what we think is a is is positive way forward for both countries. Yeah, we were going to talk a little bit about the political side, but I think we'll have to save that. We just got about 30 seconds left. Uh, you know, if you look at Japan as a formerly powerful export machine trying to uh, readjust, it's still uh, consumer spending. There's only 50 percent of the right. economy and China's trying to do it. Does that uh, speak volumes what's happened in Japan for what's likely to happen in China? Well, I think it, does. it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, you know, it's hard to do. I mean, just point in Japan and, and Martin Wolf pointed this out in a recent uh, FT article that I, that I thought was was pretty good in in trying to shift those that that household income and consumption more into the economy. Most of it comes from corporate still. 
the corporate surpluses are still important. And making that shift is really important structurally as it is for China. All right, Mark. Thanks very much uh, for joining us here. Mark Michelson, APCO Worldwide. Money for Nothing at 8.30. Australian and Korean markets higher. The Japanese market, as I mentioned, down 1.6%. The weather today, cloudy. Visibility to be low. Cool in the morning. Maximum temperature up there around 18 degrees. Right now, it's about 15. This is Money for Nothing. The news is next. Here's Samantha Butler. The chairman of the Harbourfront Commission, Nicholas Brooks, says the majority of people support setting up a Harbourfront authority to oversee the development of the waterfront. A series of public forums and workshops have been held over the past three months on the issue. The first phase of the public engagement exercise ended on Saturday. Mr Brooks spoke to RTHK this morning. Deficiencies essentially are around the, the government model, if I, if I may describe it as that. At the moment we rely on government departments to deliver uh, the waterfront. We have a very fragmented government administration, as you know, a number of silos as I describe them. Um, it's very difficult, in fairness, for government to deliver what the Commission envisages as uh, an integrated, holistic and vibrant waterfront. The departments concerned are, are competing for resources. Uh, we're in the queue with, uh, with everything else, if you like, and uh, um, it takes believe it or not, five to seven years 